I want to thank Justin uh, for doing an awesome job of preaching last week. Uh, he preached about our mark of radical hospitality, and I got to listen to the podcast. It was excellent, but the, the true way that I know he did a great job is that earlier today, a family was walking down Franklin Street wearing all Duke clothing, and I saw people smile and greet them. That is radical hospitality, so well done. All right. Nobody try to trip anybody. All right, good. <laughs> Had to do it. All right. Um, today we are continuing this series that we're in called The Heart, where we're exploring what it means when we say love Chapel Hill with the heart of Jesus. Our name is our mission. But what do we mean when we say that? And so we're walking through the Gospels, exploring the life and the teachings of Jesus as he carves out for us what that looks like. We absolutely believe that Jesus is the truth, right? That Jesus himself is the truth. And he tells us that I'm the way, the truth, and the life. So we believe he's the truth, but he's more than just a set of beliefs. He also carves out for us a way. And he shows us what his life looks like and that he wants to live through us. So we're walking in obedience with him and following him in that. That's where we're continuing today. Yes, Michelle. That's right. Amen. That's awesome. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you, Michelle. That's beautiful. There it is. Let me just expound on that. All right. (laughs) Because that's it. All right. Awesome, Michelle. Thank you. And thank you for your heart and the way you do that. Thank you for that. Awesome. Thank you, Jesus. So this is what we're studying today. And we're getting into the next mark. First, thank you, Jesus, for the people of this church. Thank you for the way that you have taught us through your own life what your heart is like for the way that you teach us through the Gospels and through the Scriptures what your heart is like. But thank you for the way you show it to us through real people all around us. Thank you for the way you're constantly speaking to us and you're showing us glimpses of yourself. Please help us to have eyes that are open to that and hearts that are open and ears that are open to hear it. And um, we want to see you, and thank you for the way that you reveal yourself to us. It's your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So today we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 19, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 10. And we're talking today about the next mark of what it means to love with the heart of Jesus, and it's this idea of courageous generosity. Courageous generosity. This is one of the customs of the kingdom of God. It's part of what makes us who we are as God's people, that we live with courageous generosity. Now, let me just start today with a disclaimer and a confession. All right. Number one, the disclaimer. Often people associate like the church with with constantly talking about money. Okay. And we see that a lot. And so the disclaimer is that I understand that some people get very uncomfortable when the church starts talking about money. 
Now, here's the confession. I'm one of those people. All right. If I get uncomfortable when I hear the church starting to talk about money. I'm not comfortable talking about it. But here's the thing. It's not because I'm uncomfortable with the tough teachings of Jesus. It's not because I'm uncomfortable with the raw truth of Scripture. The thing that makes me uncomfortable and that makes you uncomfortable is the way we see it played out sometimes in the church around us. We're not uncomfortable with what Jesus challenges us to. Well, we are. I mean, it's, it's, it's beyond what we could do on our own. But we're willing to submit ourselves to that and to listen and to surrender to that. What makes us uncomfortable is the way that we often see Christians manipulate other Christians around this issue of money in the name of Jesus. And we don't want anything to do with that. And just up front, as a church, you need to know that we don't want anything to do with that. We distance ourselves from that. We repent on behalf of other Christians, but we recognize that tension. Okay, so that's a starting point today, that we recognize that tension in the way that oftentimes people use this issue of money to manipulate each other. Sometimes people will use the issue of money to talk about the favor of God, and they will tell you that if you plant a seed into their ministry, then you're going to receive wealth in return. A harvest of wealth is going to come back to you out of that seed that you plant into a ministry. We're not saying that. We distance ourselves from that. That's not what we're talking about here, okay? It's not what we're talking about. I understand the tension. We don't want anything to do with that. And so what we want to do when we talk about money, we want to talk about it in the way that Scripture teaches us about it. We want to talk about it in the way that Jesus teaches us about it. And we say up front that Jesus teaches with some very confrontational and controversial things that he has to say about money. He talks about money a lot through the Gospels. The reason Jesus talks about money so much is not because he wants your money. It's because he wants your heart. And he understands the way that our our desire for wealth, our desire for more, he understands that enough for us is a moving target. And we think that we're going to be satisfied by the next little bit that we can get. But he knows that before long, that becomes the master of our lives. And the decisions that we make are based on that. The priorities that we set are based on that. And he wants to untangle our hearts from what can very easily become idolatry for us. Anything that you place your trust in above Jesus is an idol for you. Anything that you seek security in above Jesus is an idol for you. Anything that you long for more than Jesus is an idol for you. Anything that's a higher priority in your life than Jesus is an idol for you. And that's why Jesus speaks about it so clearly and so bluntly and so strongly. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. This idea of generosity. We're not talking about manipulating people. We're not talking about if you give money, then it's going to make your relationship right with God. That's not the gospel. That is not the gospel. Here's what we're going to be talking about. This is the framework for everything else that we're going to say today. Generosity is not a reaction to guilt. If somebody's trying to guilt you into giving to the church, that's a dangerous place to be. Generosity is not a reaction to guilt. Generosity is a response to grace.
It's understanding that the grace of Jesus has been poured out on our lives. And our natural response is to live out of the abundance of that grace and to give ourselves away in response. Generosity does not produce God's favor. Generosity is a product of God's favor that has already been poured out on you through the grace of Jesus. That's our framework. So we're in Luke chapter 19, looking at verses 1 through 10, and what this has to teach us about the truth of generosity. It's the story of a man named Zacchaeus, and here we go. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and he climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed Jesus gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. This man, too, is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. So we're just going to walk through this story and, and, and unpack this story together and take it piece by piece here, okay? First of all, this idea of Zacchaeus being a tax collector, all right? We're given that in, in the setting of the story, setting it up. Zacchaeus is a tax collector. Who here enjoys paying taxes? Exactly, all right? Nobody likes to pay taxes, okay? We get that, but we understand it's a part of, of being citizens of this, of this country, right? We understand that. This is a different kind of idea, okay? This isn't just the thought of, man, I do not want to give my taxes. Tied up in the context of this, in the time and the place that this was taking place, is this piece of the story. About 60 years before the birth of Jesus, the Roman Empire conquered this region, and they were now occupying this region. And the people were under the leadership of the Roman Empire, and it was an oppressive occupation of these people. The Roman Empire put taxes on the people, but they didn't just come and collect the taxes themselves, what they did was they recruited people from within the Jewish community to be the tax collectors for them, to be the local tax collectors. So here you've got this occupying force of a government taking these people from within the Jewish community, recruiting them to their cause, sending them to their own neighbors to go collect the taxes. You can sense the tension starting there, right? Uh, of your own neighbor coming to you, knocking on the door and saying, Caesar needs his money, okay? So there's this tension there. Another layer of it is that the Roman government allowed these tax collectors to take more than was actually owed to the government. 
So these tax collectors would go and they would not just take what the government was asking for, but they would take extra. And on the backs of their own neighbors, the tax collectors made themselves wealthy. It was an oppressive system that hurt the poor more than anyone else. Tax collectors were hated in this culture. They were the enemy. You sold out your own people. You're getting wealthy off the backs of your poor neighbors. Your wealth is coming from a place of oppression. You see the tension here. It says, and he was wealthy. He was wealthy. He made himself wealthy by taking advantage of the people around him. Now understand, Scripture doesn't say it's bad for you to be wealthy. Okay, scripture doesn't say it's bad for you to be wealthy, but it does tell us two things that God's anger burns against all throughout scripture. Two things consistently throughout scripture. Number one, idolatry and number two, oppression. Two things. Now, in the chapter right before this, in Luke chapter 18, we have the famous interaction between Jesus and the person who's known as the rich young ruler. This person who comes to Jesus and says, what does it take to follow you? Ultimately, Jesus challenges him to sell his possessions and give it to the poor. And it says the man walks away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus said, sell your possessions, give it to the poor, then come follow me. And the man walks away sad. Because he had great wealth. That is an issue of idolatry. He had the opportunity to exchange what little he had in this world for the very treasure of heaven himself. To become a follower of Jesus and to walk with him. But it was too much for him. Because Jesus wasn't just saying, hey, give your money to the poor. Jesus was challenging him to become poor. And he wanted nothing to do with that. It was idolatry. He trusted his money more than he trusted Jesus. It's not that wealth is bad. It's when it goes into that line of idolatry. Now we've got the next chapter, and it's moved from idolatry to oppression, right? He's wealthy. It's not bad that he's wealthy. It's bad because he became wealthy through oppressing other people to get there. God's anger burns against idolatry and oppression all the way throughout scripture and he warns us time and time again you must guard your heart or else what you own will eventually own you. He challenges us with that over and over again. It tells us that Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus. He wanted to see Jesus. He's this hated person in his community, seen as an enemy to the people in his community, but he was drawn to Jesus. He didn't seem to be drawn to any of the other religious leaders or the religious system as a whole. Come in. <laughs> he was challenged. I'm sorry. I'm, so, I'm sorry about that. Um, but he was drawn to Jesus. There's something about Jesus, isn't there? He's so compelling. We're drawn to him. We're drawn to him. There's something about Jesus that we are drawn to him. This is the power of grace, the dynamic of grace that is working in two directions. On the one sense, it's the grace of Jesus, the Holy One who is leaning towards us. And at the same time, it's the grace of Jesus that is drawing us to him. This dynamic, moving nature of grace is drawing 
and it's initiating all at the same time. And we see both of these happening in this story. He was drawn to Jesus. There's just something beautiful about him. He wanted to see Jesus, but it also says Jesus wanted to see Zacchaeus. He stopped. There's something about Jesus that grabs Zacchaeus' heart. But there's something about Zacchaeus as Jesus is passing by that grabbed his heart. And he stopped. And he said, come on, let me come to your house today. Come down out of that tree. Come to me and let me come to you at the same time. He saw him. He saw him. He was an enemy. He was marginalized. He was pushed to the side. No one wanted anything to do with him. But Jesus stopped. Because he saw him. I want to tell you today, there are people in this room who are spiritually curious. People in this room who are spiritually skeptical. And there are people in this room who are spiritually critical. And for different reasons, you're here because you're drawn to Jesus. You kind of want to see what is Jesus about. I want to tell you, you are welcome here. This is a home for you. Okay, you are welcome in this place. This is a safe place to be curious about Jesus, to be skeptical about Jesus, even to be critical of Christianity. This is a safe place to explore that. But I want to tell you, this is a safe place, but this is not a safe distance. There is no safe distance from Jesus. You've come because there's something about him that's drawing you, but he's drawn to you, too. And he sees you. He sees you and his heart longs for you. He sees you. And I'm praying for an encounter with Jesus for you today, that your curiosity moves from a safe distance to an encounter with the living God, with Jesus Christ himself. He sees you. Then Jesus, it says, goes to the table with Zacchaeus. I love this part because, once again, the culture of this time, this is a very controversial move for Jesus to make. This is a scandalous move, and it says it sparks this muttering among the people. Look, he goes and he eats with sinners. Look, he is a friend of sinners. Amen. And it wrecked Jesus' reputation because of the people that he was willing to share a table with. My prayer for this church is that our, our reputation gets wrecked. That's a dangerous prayer. But I pray that our reputation gets wrecked because of the kinds of people that we are willing to extend the grace of Jesus to. Because of the kind of people that we are drawn towards. Because we recognize that grace is drawing them to God and Jesus is going after them. And we want to be a part of that dynamic of grace in their life. The table is a symbol of alignment. It's a symbol of association. And the people that you share a table with are the people that you are aligning yourself with. So if you share a table with the wealthy, if you share a table with the powerful, if you share a table with the influential, that's great. And maybe God is putting you in that place so that you'll be influential among the influential. That's fantastic. But I want to tell you, if that's your table, then you're probably going to be seen as influential and powerful. But I want to warn you that if you're willing to share a table with the marginalized and the rejected 
and the misunderstood, then you will be marginalized and you will be rejected and you will be misunderstood. The table is a sign of alignment. And Jesus willingly aligns himself with sinners. He's known as a friend of sinners. I pray that we are known as friends of sinners. It's my deepest prayer for us. There's something else that's going on here that I love. It's not just Jesus going to him, but it also says that Zacchaeus welcomed him gladly. Zacchaeus welcomed Jesus gladly. Today we have an opportunity at 1.30 after church today to share a table with some of the most marginalized people in our local community. Along with Vimalus Curry Blossom Cafe, who is hosting the meal at her restaurant, a local organization that works with refugee families, we are hosting local refugee families for a meal, for a meal of loving our neighbors. We are welcoming people to the table, and we are humbled and honored to sit at a table with them. They are our neighbors, and we're going to align ourselves with them. Now, we've already talked about the way the church gets involved with money, and we want to distance ourselves from that, right? We also want to distance ourselves from the church getting itself tangled up in partisan politics. So you need to hear that this is not a political reaction. This is not a partisan rant for us to go and do this. This is simply a Jesus response. We feel like this is what he's put on our hearts. And we have to be willing to be aligned with some of the more marginalized people in our community and extend to them a tangible expression of the love of Jesus. Now, something crazy is going to happen when we do that. We see ourselves as taking the love of Jesus to them. But in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus tells us that when I was a stranger and you, you welcomed me in, anything that you have done for one of the least of these, you have done for me. And so just like Zacchaeus, we're not only taking the love of Jesus to people today, it is quite possible that we are welcoming Jesus as he comes to us as the stranger. I want to be at a table with Jesus. I want to be at the table with Jesus, inviting you to be there as well. One thirty today, Vimalus Curry Blossom Cafe. The response here is so powerful. Zacchaeus is moved, and it says that he stands up and he makes this bold declaration and this commitment that says, From this point on, I'm giving half of my possessions away. And anyone that I've cheated out of anything, which is basically everyone, I'm going to pay it back four times the amount. That is an incredible response. But here's what we need to understand in this. This is not Zacchaeus' attempt to pay Jesus back. This is simply a response to the grace that he has experienced. He is so overwhelmed by the grace of Jesus. It moves him to his core. It changes him. It transforms him. And it sparks in him this sense of gratitude that leads to generosity to other people around him. You cannot pay Jesus back. Generosity, that's not what Zacchaeus is doing. And that's not what generosity is. It is not paying God back. You cannot pay God back. 
As we sang earlier today, this is my righteousness, nothing but the blood of Jesus. No works can win you that. No good deeds can win you that. Jesus Christ has already paid the price with his own blood. God emptied out the treasure of heaven to bring you into a reconciled relationship with him. That's the depth of his grace and his love and his mercy. That is the heart of the gospel right there. And you cannot pay that back. You can't. Generosity is not an attempt to pay God back. Generosity is a response to the grace that's already been given to you. And that's what Zacchaeus does. And that's what God is calling every one of us to as well. It's not paying God back. It's a response of grace. Jesus says salvation has come to your house today. Jesus himself is salvation. And so in response, he is overwhelmed with this sense of generosity. Five quick things I want to walk us through about what generosity is. Number one, generosity is not about paying God back, as we've already said. It's the love of Jesus that cultivates a a deep sense of gratitude and generosity in us in response to the abundance of grace. You cannot pay him back. You can't. It's a response to grace. Number two, generosity is not about an amount. We think about this and we're like, man, I can't afford to give half and then pay back four times like Zacchaeus did. It's not about an amount. It's about living out of the abundance of grace. It's about an alignment of the heart. That's what generosity is. Enough is a moving target. So don't think, well, man, once I get enough, then I'll be able to be generous. Once I have enough, then I can give out of a larger amount. No, it's about being faithful with what we've got right now and living in response to grace right now. Now, it's not about an amount. It's about an alignment of the heart. Number three, grace is more, I mean, generosity is more than stewardship. Generosity is more than stewardship. Throughout scripture, we're taught this biblical concept of stewardship with our money. And it's powerful. And we believe in that. And we challenge you to live in that. And the biblical principle is this, that the first 10% of everything that I get, I give to God. It's called a tithe. The first 10% right off the top, it goes back to God. I give it to God because I understand that everything I have belongs to him. 100% of what I have belongs to him. And in an act of surrender, in this discipline of gratitude, I give back 10% to him. But generosity actually goes above and beyond the tithe. It goes more than 10%. As a church, We felt challenged when we were first starting out that, yes, we're going to challenge people to tithe, but we're not going to ask people to tithe if if the church as a whole isn't going to tithe as well. And so we wanted to set the standard as a whole church. And so here's our standard, a standard of courageous generosity. It's backed us in a corner multiple times, (laughs) but this is our standard. We have committed that 20% of everything that comes in, we give away. 20% we give away, not to pay pastors, not to do stuff within the church, not to do ministries, not to do anything else. We give it away to help plant other churches around North Carolina and beyond, to help support missionaries, to help support local organizations, to give towards compassion ministries around us. 20% we give away. We want to model generosity as a church. I want to tell you, I'm so proud of our staff because multiple times we've been in meetings and we've been like, this is going to be really tight. (laughs) Can we do this? 
Can we actually do this right now? And without fail, every single time, every person on the church staff has says, we will do it. Whether we can do it or not, we will do it. Because this is what we've committed, and God will be faithful in that. Number four, generosity has the courage not only to say yes when God puts something on our heart, but it also has the courage to say no. So as a church, we have a standard that we don't ever give cash away. We just don't do it. Because here's the thing. When I'm walking down the street and somebody asks me for a little bit of money, it's easy for me to give a couple of bucks, wave, smile, keep on walking, and think that I did something. Who got helped in that scenario? Me. I did. My own heart, my own mind eased a little bit to convince me that I actually did something. You know what is really costly? Not dropping a couple of bucks somebody's way, but stopping, looking someone in the eye, asking them their name, asking them what it is that they actually need, and becoming a part of a cycle of redemption through relationship in a person's life. The most powerful resource you can give away is a relationship with someone. I want to challenge you to do that. So sometimes it has the courage to say no because that would only be helping ourselves, but to engage in a cycle of relationship. And number five, grace and generosity is a kingdom custom. Generosity is a kingdom custom. It's a part of who we are. And it's a part of what we do as the people of Jesus. It's a part of being in this family. And so we want to live that out. Right here in Luke chapter 19 in verse 10, the end of this story, the very last verse of this story, we have the key verse for the entire gospel of Luke. And it's summed up this way. Jesus says, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. That is the mission of the kingdom of God, and we are a part of that. And so when we are being generous, that's what we're giving towards, is the mission of Jesus in the world to continue to be a part of this ongoing revolution and movement since the time of Jesus, for Jesus Christ to seek and save lost people in our community right here. That's what generosity is about. We give towards that mission to seek and save the lost. You do that in so many beautiful ways. It's powerful to see the way you do it. Our friends who own a a bagel restaurant, our friend Kara, who's a part of this church, owns the bagel bar. She gives bagels, 80 bagels almost, every single week as an act of generosity and hospitality to us. So many of you have given clothes to people. You've given tents. You've given backpacks. Um, You have, I can't read my own writing. You've given, so one of our friends makes sandwiches, doesn't have a lot to give away, but he uses the resources that he's got, and he makes sandwiches, and he walks down Franklin Street, and he gives those away. Others of you have paid for bus passes for people who are part of our community here. Some of you have gathered together meals, given meals, and organized meals for people who are going through the joy of celebrating a baby that's been born into their family or going through the tragedy of losing someone that they love. You've done that. That's generosity. You've given your time, volunteering. It takes so much to do this every week and beyond what, we, what happens right here in this room. So many of you give so much of your time to that. You've helped to plant churches. You've encouraged missionaries. You've been a part of mercy and justice organizations around this community. One of, uh, a couple of our friends who two years ago were living in a tent 
and felt like they had very little to give. This past weekend, a weekend ago, when the water crisis hit, I was getting texts from them saying, hey, we've got extra bottled water. Do you need any? This is generosity. This is a response to grace. It's not about amount. It's about understanding the abundance of grace that pours out of us to the world around us. The list is long of what it can look like, but the mission is singular to seek and save the lost. It's what we're a part of. It's what we're a part of. It's what generosity is. You were given one of these. I want to encourage you to grab a hold of this and to read through this and to put some of these in practice this week. It's an experiment in grace to take this beyond a lecture, put it into the lab where you can actually put it into practice. Let this challenge you some simple ways to begin practicing generosity. This is the heart of Jesus. It's the heart of Jesus. It's not a reaction to guilt. It is a response to grace that has been poured out on us with such rich abundance. Jesus, thank you so much for who you are, for the way that you love us. Thank you that we are the recipients of your grace. We could never pay you back. We could never pay you back. But we pray that that grace and that love that's been poured out on us would cultivate in us a sense of gratitude and a sense of generosity. That we would have our eyes open to the people around us, to the way you're communicating to us through the people around us. And help us to respond by giving ourselves away. Help us to put our money where the mission is, to seek and to save the lost. Let us be a part of that. See you in your name we pray. Amen.